And by the way, if you guys are considering moving, uh, I just want to let you know there's an official one-year moratorium on anybody moving out of state as of right now. So scrap those plans, all right? And while you're at it, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of digging into this book written by Paul to the church in Colossae. So in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to continue looking at it. Paul never actually went to the church in, in Colossae. He, he led a guy, Epaphras, to know Jesus Christ, shared with him the gospel message. And Epaphras ended up going to Colossae because that's where he lived. And he began to share the good news, this gospel message, with, with his neighbors, with his friends. And the church began to grow and it really began to show you know, a lot of people began to come into the church. But as so often happens with a young fledgling church, false teaching began to percolate in there. And Epaphras was kind of scared as he, he watched people come in and say, you know, Jesus, he's a great teacher. He's a great savior. But guess what? He's just a step towards real, true spiritual righteousness. If you really want to attain spiritual fullness, like they like to say, if you really want to attain spiritual fullness, you need to also worship fill in the blank. You also need to do A, B, and C. You need to stop doing A, B, and C. These are the ways that you will attain true spiritual fullness or maturity. And so Epaphras does what any smart young leader will do. He goes and goes to Paul and goes, help, tell me what to do. And Paul's sitting in Rome and under house arrest awaiting his trial because he's been sharing the gospel and he kind of stirred up a lot of um, people angry at him. And so he was arrested and sent to Rome and so from Rome, under house arrest, he pens this letter to the people in, Corinth, uh, in, in Colossae. And in it, he very clearly lays out the gospel message. If you want to help somebody recognize false teaching, the best way to do it is to remind them of true teaching. Get them so intimately familiar with it that when they come across false teaching, they know it out of hand. And so he begins to hammer home the gospel message. We looked at that two weeks ago at the end of chapter one, where he hammers it. And then he's going to hammer it again here in just a few minutes, as we're going to look at in chapter two. And it's not because he forgot that he already shared the gospel message. It's not like he's just getting repetitive because he didn't remember that, you know, just a few verses before he's already said it. It's that we as human beings need to be reminded. I mean, I'm constantly reminding my son over and over and over again to do something because it takes a while. My wife is constantly reminding me over and over and over again. Maybe it's a guy thing, but I doubt it. I think there's probably all of us need to be reminded. All of us need to hear things multiple times before it finally starts sinking in. And so what I'm going to do is I want to read a portion of this letter. I'm going to back up and start with the beginning of chapter two, just so we have a running start at this, because so often what we do is we take just a couple of verses and kind of take them out of their context. But we need to remember that first and foremost, this is a letter written to this church. In its entirety, it's expected to be read, read. We don't have time to take the whole thing in one weekend because we couldn't possibly go deep enough and really understand everything. So we're taking sections out. But what I want to do is I want to give us some context, read a little bit of what's coming before it so that we understand how this flows out of Paul's message. So beginning in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those in Laodicea, which is another city not too far from them, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they, those people who haven't met me, 
may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For although I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and upon the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised in Christ or by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, that is like drinking from a theological fire hose. Right now, some of us are going, yeah, I got nothing, you know. And so what I want to do is I just want to take this verse by verse. I want to kind of take this in chunks and try to digest it a little bit. Let's look at this first two verses, verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. You know, we make a big deal in the church about praying a prayer, don't we? Pray this prayer and invite Jesus Christ into your heart. I mean, I, I led some of you in that very prayer a couple of weeks ago. The danger is that when we begin to focus on a prayer, we might begin to think of it as the finish line. This is the culmination of my relationship with Jesus as opposed to what it really is. It is the starting line of a life spent in intimacy with God. I think of the day that I stood to wed my wife, Kathy. She and I are standing there kind of awkwardly excited. I'm like, dang, she's hot. I can't believe she said yes. <laughs> my friends and family there with me. And on that day, I ceased to be a bachelor. So it was a finish line in some ways. That was the end of my bachelorhood, but it was so much more than that. Because on that day, I began my journey as a husband. But imagine if after that day, I continue, continued to live as if I was a bachelor. I kept going out and meeting other girls and, hey, you want to go get dinner sometime? I, I, I kept spending my paychecks as if they were simply mine to spend. What if, I, what if I kept, you know, making decisions as if my life was the only one that was affected rather than considering my family? What if I never made any efforts after that day to actually court Kathy, to actually get to know her, get to know what she was thinking and feeling? I, I never really even sought her out other than when I was hungry for food or wanted sex or something. It, could, would you say at that point that I had any clue what it meant to be a husband? Absolutely not. But in the same way, isn't that in some ways 
the temptation of what we do in our relationship with God. Yes, I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I need a savior. Jesus, come into my life. And at that point, we then sometimes go on as if we are still the captains of our own ship. We continue to live our lives as if we are ultimately the ones who are in control. And that's the way it should be. We don't really carve out time to get to know the love of our life. We say, Jesus, I love you, but we don't really spend any time truly getting to know him, spending time in his presence. We may seek him out when we're sick or, you know, the things in life get to be so overwhelming or we need money or something. We're like, please provide for me. I need help. But other than that, we're just kind of like, thank you. I punched my ticket to heaven. We're good. I'm going to go ahead and live my life to the fullest now. And Paul, over and against that mindset that says that we can simply come to Jesus, allow him to be our savior, and then go on with our life. He rails against that in in verse six. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And by the way, that doesn't mean that we can simply accept Jesus as our savior. One, One of the things we love to do in our relationship with God is kind of split his roles, savior and Lord. Yeah, I want him as my savior. Yes, I need a savior, but I don't really need a Lord. I'm, I'm pretty capable of taking care of myself. I'll come to him when I need him to show up, but I'm pretty good. That would be tantamount to me standing up on the day of my wedding and saying, I, Eric, take you, Kathy, to be my wife in good times, but, but not the hard ones. For richer, but certainly not for poorer. When I'm sick and you're healthy, for better, definitely not for worse. Until something better comes along, I'm all yours. I doubt that she would accept that vow. Um, It would make a mockery of the covenant that we are making. And in the same way, we can't split our relationship with Jesus and say, I'm willing to take you as my savior, but I don't want you as my Lord. He doesn't offer us that option. And so the invitation, the encouragement, the thing that Paul is saying is, listen, do not for a moment think that you can simply run off after other things, after other gods. Jesus is sufficient and Jesus needs to be the Lord of your life. As you accepted him as Lord, continue now to live your life out in him. Verse seven, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. He he actually kind of mixes a couple of different metaphors here. One from agriculture, being rooted in Christ, and then one from construction, being built up in him. And it's interesting as you actually, as I was kind of thinking about those, Both of those metaphors are metaphors that Jesus himself used to talk about building our life upon him. Think about John 15. I, Jesus, am the true vine. You are the branches. And if you abide in me, if you basically find your your stability and your foundation in me and draw yourself so closely to me that we are in relationship and you you find your identity, you find your purpose, you find your strength to face each day in me. If you abide in me, then you will bear fruit, much fruit. 
We know the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, thankfulness. One of the fruits of those Spirit is thankfulness that Paul references here. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But what happens if we don't? What happens if we, like some of the other philosophies were suggesting, Jesus is a great stepping stone, but, you know, there are other deities, there are other spiritual forces out there that we can kind of hook our lasso onto and that can take us even higher into spiritual fullness. Or, or you just need to do these other things. If we try to attempt to earn our righteousness by our own strength, then what does Jesus warn? Apart from me, you can accomplish nothing of any lasting value. You All that will happen when you sever yourself from the true vine is you sever yourself from life that is truly life. You'll begin to wither and die and you will live a fruitless life. Elsewhere, Jesus references that metaphor of building at the end of his Sermon on the Mount when he says, listen, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And when the storms of life come, and trust me, they're going to come. When the storms of life come and the waves are beating against that house, they will not be able to shake the foundation of your house and it will stand the test. But... If you allow yourself to be swayed, if you begin to say, well, it's a lot flatter over here, it would be a lot easier to build over here. This makes a lot more sense because I get to be in control. I have the foundation. I didn't build that. I can make my own foundation over here on the sand. That ground will shift under your feet. You may think you're standing firmly, but one day when the storms of life come and trust me, they will come. That house that you have built, your life will come crashing down around you. And so Paul is kind of referencing both of these when he says, let me read this one more time. Verse six. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, not being motivated and shifted away from it by these false teachings, these philosophies of men. And if you do so, if you remain rooted in him, you will overflow with thankfulness. So, and then he explicitly warns them against listening to other philosophies. Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and upon the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than upon Christ. We're going to go deeper into what that means next week. But suffice it to say, he's he's warning them, listen, this false teaching that you're being like force-fed right now, reject it because there's no life in that there's no truth in that so run from it verse 9 for in christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in christ you have been brought to fullness there's that tag word that the, the false teachers were suggesting if you want true spiritual fullness all you need to do is fill in the blank he's saying you have been made full in christ And don't think that he's some second-hand, second-rate deity because he is the head over every power and authority. Here's the point Paul is making. Jesus Christ is not just one of many prophets, not one of many, you know, good teachers who, who can point us to God as some Muslim imams would suggest he is. He's just one of many prophets. No, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. When looking at him, 
you see our Father in heaven who none have seen and can live. And he is not only our Savior, but he is also the creator and sustainer of everything. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. And he alone can bring you to true spiritual fullness. He alone can make you complete. When I say that, I think about some of my single friends who are just waiting for that significant other who will... Is that you, Bob? Just kidding. Waiting for that significant other who will somehow complete them. As if they're somehow incomplete in their singleness. And Paul would say, absolutely not. You're not inferior. You are not incomplete because you're single. In Christ, every single one of us is made complete. So stop waiting for that person that will complete you. And for those of us who are married and are a little frustrated at our spouses because they're not quite meeting our expectations, they're not quite completing us the way that we thought that they would, at least one of the reasons why they're not doing that is because our spouses were never designed to complete us. And it is impossible for them to do so. So maybe we need to be a little bit more, you know, gracious with our spouses. Because it's in Christ alone that we are made complete. So to look to other things, jobs, success, people, relationships to somehow complete us is a futile effort. Verse 9. Already went over that. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the working of God, who raised Christ from the dead as well. Circumcision was one of these things that for the Jewish people, for Israel, This was kind of their initiation into the family of God. Young Israelite boys, when they were eight days old, would be circumcised because that was the tangible symbol of of God's ownership over them. It was kind of like when we put on a wedding ring, only for them a little bit less comfortable and a whole lot less public, hopefully. But what so often happens with symbols is that they can very quickly become the the focus. A symbol is supposed to remind us of what it represents. But very quickly, a symbol, when we can focus on it and say that is the hoop through which you have to jump through in order to be a person that God would call a son or daughter. This is the hoop you have to jump through in order to be saved. The focus becomes on the hoop rather than upon what the hoop represents. I mean, imagine if one of you guys came up to me and go, hey, Eric, are you a good husband? And I'm like, hey, check her out. You know, you'd be like, you totally don't get this. It's not about having a wedding ring. There have been times where I, I accidentally lose my ring because I've taken it off. And Kathy, I'm sorry. You know, it's in one of the pockets of one of the pants I've worn at some point that week. And I'll get to it eventually when I finally do the laundry. But whether I have my ring on or not doesn't matter, does it? What matters is that I have covenanted with God and with my wife and that I am a husband to her. Furthermore, if I have my ring on and I'm treating Kathy disrespectfully and I am cruel to her, I make a mockery of the covenant that I made. 
My wife doesn't care as much about whether I have my ring on as she does about how I actually husband her, how I love her, how I am with her, and whether my heart is actually present with her. The focus isn't upon the symbol, but upon what the symbol symbolizes. And the problem is, for the Jews, they began to focus an inordinate amount of energy and time on the symbol, and they forgot that God was after their hearts, not simply after them having the right signs. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, the circumcision that's been done to you is not a circumcision that's done with a knife. It's not a circumcision that can be done by human hands. It is a circumcision that Christ himself has done. Christ, when he comes into our life, he begins to clean us up. It's called the sanctification process. We have been justified. So when we stand in a courtroom, through his blood, our, the penalties for our lives have been wiped clean. And now he's in the process of sanctifying us, setting us apart. Those are just big words for God is in the process of cleaning our lives up. It's not something that happens immediately or happens, you know, perfectly this side of the grave. But it's Christ who sets us apart. Christ who does the work. We'll talk more about that next week, about how that works. But Paul also says, listen, so don't allow yourself to be cajoled into getting circumcised as if that's the hoop you have to jump through. I mean, remember, you've already been baptized. He reminds them, as Christ followers, Epaphras has already made sure that you guys are baptized. That is the tangible symbol that the Christians began to use to identify themselves with Christ. It almost supplanted circumcision for the Jews. The Christians began to do baptism because of its symbolism. In baptism... You go under the water, identifying yourself with the death and burial with Jesus Christ. And then when you come back out of the water, being raised from the dead. He said, you've already been baptized, so you don't need to go and get circumcised. Christ is doing the circumcision in your life. He is setting you apart. He's sanctifying you. Don't feel like you have to jump through that hoop. One last thought on that before we move on. We can very easily turn baptism into the same kind of hoop that the Israelites turn circumcision into. Make it a hoop that you just have to jump through. If you're not baptized, you don't go to heaven kind of thing. And I have heard people make that argument. First thing I do is I remember the thief on the cross. He goes, Jesus, remember me in paradise. He goes, certainly you will be with me in paradise. Now, unless he spat on that guy and that was okay for baptism, that guy didn't get baptized and yet he went to heaven. Baptism is not a hoop we jump through. It is not magic. It does not save us. We are saved by grace. I'm saying we are saved by grace alone, through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Baptism doesn't save us, and yet that doesn't mean that baptism doesn't matter. It matters greatly. Jesus modeled it for us. He himself was baptized, and he called us to be baptized. It is a way of saying, I'm in. In a couple of weeks, on September 15th, we're going to be doing public baptisms here. We're going to use the baptismal. It's one of the best weekends we have when we do baptisms. And there are some of you out here who may need to be considering, maybe it's time for me to make that public declaration of the decision I've already made internally. It's time for me to announce to my church family, maybe even invite my, my family to come to church that weekend. Maybe invite my coworkers and my friends and publicly declare, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, I am following Jesus. 
And if that's you and you, you want more information on that, on the connection card, there's also a place to say, yeah, I'm interested in baptism. Sign me up. And we will contact in the next week or two to talk about that. But baptism isn't a hoop that we jump through. And Paul is simply saying, you don't get sanctified by your own efforts. You get sanctified by Christ working in you. And we're going to touch on that a lot more next week. So let's move on because there's one last part that I want to focus on. And this part is the most exciting part of what we're going to look at today. Because he ends again with a very clear articulation of the gospel message in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically when you were still living in rebellion to God, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us. The word sin is an archery term. When you're, when you're going to shoot your arrow and you let it go, you're aiming at the bullseye. Anything outside of the bullseye, anything less than perfection, and you have sinned, you have missed the mark. And in, in this instance, we use it in the Christian church to refer to anything less than God's righteous standard. Well, Paul in Romans 3.23 says, Everyone, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard. And later on in that same letter to the Romans, he says, the wages of sin is what? Death. Those who miss the mark have earned for themselves the penalty of death, eternal separation from God who is holy and cannot abide, cannot accept our sinfulness. It is, a, it is an affront to his holiness. When the Rome, Rome really at this time in the first century oversaw all of Israel. Rome was the most powerful nation in the world. And in the first century, as Paul is sitting, remember, under house arrest awaiting his own, his own trial that could very well end in his execution, the Roman custom was that when somebody was arrested and was accused of doing things and was awaiting trial, or even when they were ultimately declared guilty of these things, they would be given a, basically a, a, a piece of paper that was written upon it all of the accusations against them, all of the things that they were accused of doing. It was a certificate of indebtedness. And when they were put in jail this certificate of indebtedness would be nailed to the door so that everybody who passed by their jail cell would see the things that they are in jail for, the things that they must atone for before they'd be released. When you came in this morning, if you got a bulletin, there's a three-by-five card. Pull that out. If you don't have a bulletin or you don't have a three-by-five card, raise your hand. We've got a few guys here who have three-by-five cards, and Elizabeth upstairs has got them. If you don't have one, raise your hand. They will bring you one right now. I want to make sure everybody has one. Pirate Don over here, John Whiteman over here, just throw something at him. He'll get your attention. So what I want us to do this morning is I want to take just a couple of minutes. We're not going to belabor this, 
But I want you to take a few minutes and just ask yourself, if I had a certificate of indebtedness made out for me, if I were arrested and somebody said, you have sinned against God, you have missed the, the mark, God's righteous standard, what would be written on that? You don't need to put your name on this. You might want to use code words if you would feel more comfortable. That's fine. But write down some of the things that would be written on that. Let's just take a couple of minutes. What are the ways that you have missed the mark? Go. You guys could probably continue for a lot longer and probably need a whole lot more of these. Let's just use this as a start, as a symbol of what's really there. As I mentioned Rome would take these certificates of indebtedness and they would nail them to the prison door jail cell until that person was exonerated or that person had fully paid the penalty of whatever it was. And then what they would do is they would write a single Greek word across that, tetelestai, which meant paid in full. They would scrawl that across. And tetelestai was a, a common word used every day in the marketplace as well because when somebody paid, like let's say that you're buying a, a house, a horse or a chariot or something like that, and you were making payments, when you made the final payment, then across your bill of sale, they would write tetelestai, paid in full. I think about Jesus sitting on the cross do you remember what they nailed above him? Here lies the king, you know, here's the king of the Jews. That was his certificate of indebtedness. Jesus was accused of trying to be a, 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 a king. How dare he? And so he was given a certificate of indebtedness that said, king of the Jews, that's why you're being killed. But in reality, the cross was something far different. And what he was ultimately going there was for something far different. We read in verse 13. When we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken this certificate of indebtedness away. He nailed it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them on the cross. Do you remember the last thing that Jesus cried when he was hanging on the cross right before he died? What was the last thing that Jesus said? It is finished. He cried, it is finished. And then he died. The Greek word for it is finished is to tell us die. The same word that would be scrawled across a, a certificate of indebtedness. It is finished, paid in full. That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He took upon himself the penalty that was due us so that we could stand in God's presence, forgiven, righteous, even though We've all sinned. And so what I want to invite you to do this morning as the worship team is going to come up and lead us in a song is I just want to invite you to come down. There are three crosses, each of them 
consider it the, the cross that Christ hung on. Okay, it's symbolic. You don't have to come to the middle one. There are hammers and nails here. And I'm just going to invite you. You can fold it in half if you want. Come up here. Place your sins upon the cross. And then as you're nailing, just three hits. It is finished. You don't have to say it out loud if you don't want to. But come and nail your sins to the cross because that is what Jesus did for us is he took our sins upon himself. It's finished, paid in full. So when the enemy comes around and says, you did this, if anybody ever knew about this, all you have to do is look to the cross and remember that it's already been paid. We're free because he took it upon himself. So now as you feel led, go ahead and come up here and nail your sins to the cross as a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done for us.